We come this morning um, to a passage of Scripture that is uh, one of the most difficult passages to interpret and apply in all of the New Testament. Um, This is one of those instructions of the Apostle Paul that the Apostle Peter called hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. This is one of those passages that, honestly, most evangelical Christians either ignore or explain away or shrug at. It can't mean that, but I don't know what it means. This is a passage of Scripture that is still hotly debated in certain circles. Some believe that this is binding on all Christians today, all of it, and some believe that none of it is binding on Christians today. And if I'm a little confused in my mind this morning, or at least in the words trying to come out, because this passage has kept me up more than one night this week as I've wrestled with this text. Before I read it, let me make what what might be considered by some to be an inflammatory statement. Why not? It's one that's seen in Scripture, one that is confirmed, I think, by experience, and is at least partially a distillation of what's happening in this passage, and that is this. An unsubmissive wife is contentious. An unsubmissive wife is contentious. That's a simple statement that many hate the thought of. Well, let's read. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given for her for a covering." If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Of all times, we need to stop now and pray. Lord, we believe um, that your word is 
God breathed and that it is profitable, that it instructs us and rebukes us, that it is given to teach us to be like Christ. And so it is our prayer today, Lord, that I would decrease and that Christ would increase. Help us to see these things for what they are, which are the very words of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, why do you think this passage that I just read is so difficult to interpret and apply? Could it be that we read the Bible through the lens of our own experiences? Could it be that we come to the Scriptures with certain cultural presuppositions? Well, one of the keys to interpreting Scripture... Um, as many have said, I think I first heard this from Alistair Begg. We let the, the plain things be the main things. In other words, we should, we should start with a straightforward reading of the text. The Bible usually just says what it means and means what it says. But then there are some passages of Scripture that cause us to come away scratching our heads. Think of so much of the book of Ezekiel, for example. Or the middle section of Jude's epistle. But in order to help us begin to understand this passage, we need to remember the context of the rest of this letter. For most of 1 Corinthians so far, as we have worked through this this year, last year, for most of this letter, for most of 1 Corinthians so far, in fact, really from chapter 3 all the way through chapter 10, Paul addresses the body life of the church, the day-to-day issues that come up between believers that have been the source of divisions and factions that have developed there in the church at Corinth. There's been favoritism. Some have said, I am of Paul, while others said, well, I am of Apollos. He's addressed unchecked sexual sin, as well as church members who who take each other to court as a way to solve their disputes. He's addressed the intimate relationships between husbands and wives, as well as some principles for the unmarried and, and those who are widows of the church. And for the last few chapters, we've been talking about for several weeks now, he's been addressing the problems that surround eating food offered to idols. They were flirting, coming very close to the line of being involved in idolatry in many ways. He's writing to a church that is struggling to live as sanctified saints in an incredibly pagan society. And over and over again, Paul has called them to live and to act in a way that reflects the holiness of Christ. He's called them to live countercultural lives set apart in service to the king. And then in this section after this, beginning down in verse 17, he instructs them in the proper administration of the Lord's Supper. And from there on, really the rest of chapter 11 through chapters 12, 13, and 14, he addresses issues that have developed within, within the churches, the Corinthian churches' assembled worship. So in the first half, it's sort of just church uh, uh, body life relationships. And after this section, it's things that are happening in the church services when they're together. 
Now for these verses today, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 to 16, you cannot find two commentaries, two scholars, or even two pastors who say the same thing, who interpret these verses in the same way. Uh, This week I listened to or or read some transcripts of sermons by a couple of different well-known and trustworthy pastors who generally agree on many passages of Scripture and yet came to different conclusions regarding these verses. Maybe I'm going to show a little bit of my humanity. I don't know if that's the right word. But I'll just be honest with you. I could not figure these verses out for the life of me until I realized that I had been approaching this while making a huge assumption, and that is this. I assumed, as do I think a lot of others, that these verses are taking place within the gathered worship of the church, but I don't necessarily think that they are, and I'm going to explain why. Now, I do think, obviously, and he says this, he's talking, Excuse me, he's talking about prayer and a proclaiming of the faith, and we'll get into those things here in a bit. But I think, I don't think that Paul is addressing here necessarily things that take place during Sunday worship. So I think these first verses of chapter 11 are a transitional passage. He's been talking about day-to-day Christian life and relationships up until this point. And in the next section, he addresses what happens when you come together. In fact, that phrase, when we get down into verse 17 and beyond, that phrase is repeated five times in the rest of the chapter. When you come together. When you come together. Here's why I think he's not giving instructions for Lord's Day worship. We ought to go by the standard that Paul does not outright contradict himself, right? We need to interpret Scripture with Scripture, and we believe that Paul isn't outright contradicting himself. So consider verse 5. Verse 5 says this, But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. What does... What does Paul not do in that verse? He does not say that women are not allowed to do those things. He says that they must have their head covered if they do. Now consider, flip up a couple of chapters to chapter 14. Clearly, from the context, and we will get there when we get into these chapters, in chapters Uh, The rest of 11, all of 12, 13 is that love chapter, which is sort of um, applies to all things. And then in chapter 14, he's clearly talking about assembled worship. And in verses um, 34 and 35, we read this. It kind of begins in the beginning of, uh, middle of 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, we will get into those verses later when we get there. Maybe I'll have Ben preach on that. (laughs) But one thing that we do know is that he cannot be contradicting himself. He can't be saying, on the one hand, in chapter 11, if you're going to pray, wear a bonnet. 
And then on the other hand, on second thought, in chapter 14, on second thought, just keep quiet. He can't be saying that. That's not how scriptural interpretation works. I'm going to say more about what I think is happening here in just a couple of minutes. But I want to give you a couple of other things to keep in mind as we look at these verses. The first thing is that we all understand... um, we all understand cultural norms, ways of showing honor, for example. Ways of showing honor or respect or, or deference between, between various uh, people that differs from one culture to the next. And they also change over time. Uh, so I'm, I'm talking about how, how the younger people show respect to their elders. How that is done is done in a lot of different ways around the world. Right? We understand that. Or wives to husbands. Or even the laity to the clergy. So, for example, do men, do men still stand when a lady either enters or leaves a room? These things change over time and from culture to culture, right? I'm not saying should they. I'm just saying do they. It, it, it's changing. The second thing to keep in mind is this. Paul's concern throughout this book, throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, throughout this letter, has to do with order, propriety, and peace in the church. He says, let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. And he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Paul's concern is in the building up of the Corinthian church to the glory of God. And then the third thing that we need to keep in mind as we read through these, as we look at these verses, is that Paul is also concerned that proper distinctions are made between men and women, between husbands and wives. He wants to be sure that that none of the cultural norms are ignored in church that might undermine the the headship of the husband in marriage and so bring shame to Christ. See, Paul's instruction here in in this kind of, honestly, kind of mundane and, and frankly strange topic, his instruction here is grounded in the Bible's view of creation. It's grounded on on, on how being in the Lord, on how being Christians alters how everyday life is to be understood. See, salvation in Christ obliterates the first century world's gender hierarchy. Hear me again, and I'm going to explain this. Salvation in Christ obliterates the first century, the Greek-Roman society world's gender hierarchy. So here's what I mean. In a society like theirs, where common women were not able to own property, and in most cases could not therefore receive an inheritance, even if their husband died, and by common women I just mean not super wealthy, there's exceptions for the super wealthy, but most in that culture could not own property, could not receive an inheritance, and yet Paul writes in the book of Galatians this, he says, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. 
For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir... As long as he is a child, Paul continues, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, a lot of this sounds foreign to us, living in this culture in 2022. But the Bible is telling even the women, even widows and little girls, that in Christ, you are given the legal status as sons or heirs according to the promise. That didn't happen anywhere else, only in Christ. And yet, in the context of 1 Corinthians, where they took their freedoms to the max and they threw off all cultural and and religious inhibitions, Paul needs to explain that the Corinthians must avoid flaunting their freedoms, which they've done. They should continue to observe all of, the, all of the proprieties of polite society and avoid bringing unnecessary dishonor to themselves and as a result to the Lord. Paul is making the same argument here that he's made all along. Just because there is grace and now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ, this does not mean, for example, that Christians then go ahead and visit the temple prostitutes. We talked about that a few chapters ago. It does not mean that Christians can eat food that was offered in sacrifice to idols without consideration for the people around us. It does mean that it's just food. And we are free to eat anything that we can give thanks for because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But we are to do so in a a way that displays our love for our neighbor and our honor and glory and love for our God. And then here, in this passage, while it is true that all Christians, whether male or female, have been adopted as sons or heirs, and therefore are heirs of the promise, that does not mean that the creative order is done away with. It does not mean that the roles of men and women, of husbands and wives, roles that are rooted in creation, this does not mean that those distinctions are eliminated. That's the core of what is happening here. Now, there are a few ways that we can apply the principle that we see in these verses. One way is like this. There are some who see this, see these verses... As purely the custom of the day, therefore, 
This passage has nothing to do with modern Christians. They would say, not just the head coverings, not just the the references to long or short hair, but even the principle of submission is simply a custom of the day and does not apply to modern Christians. And as a result, that group has to throw out entire portions of the New Testament as being irrelevant to Christians living today. Another way to apply these verses is to say that all of it is of significance to modern Christians. And so there are those who would say that not only must all Christian women submit to their husbands, they must symbolize this in the way that Scripture describes here always. Those are sort of the extreme views. Um, And my guess is that everybody in here knows people from both ends of the spectrum. That's my guess. Actually, it's more than a guess. I know you do. The view that I take is this. Paul's principle is that wives are to be in submission to their own husbands, who are to be the spiritual leaders of the home, and that both are to be in submission to Christ. How this is displayed can be varied from culture to culture. A good example of these cultural differences is how we treat foot washing. We believe that the principle of foot washing that we see in John chapter 13, that Jesus, uh, when he washes his disciples' feet, that it is a self-sacrificial serving of one another. But the custom can be seen in a variety of ways. So it was customary in the time of Christ to provide a servant to wash the filthy feet of their guests. Christ washed his disciples' feet as a way to illustrate the sacrifice, not only that he was about to make on the cross, and, and, but also to cultivate their hearts toward, toward a sacrificial service, even to those beneath them. Is the point there. We could say the same thing about the phrase, greet one another with a holy kiss. Most of us have quickly dismissed that, most of us guys, have quickly dismissed that as cultural only. And we actually understand that because we know some other cultures who do something like that, right? Today we welcome one another with a firm handshake, maintaining personal distance. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Now, that was a long setup, and I apologize, um, not really, but I want to dig into this text and see if we can understand what the Lord would have for us today. Paul begins by really with a condemn, a commendation, and also speaking of a relationship. Look at the first two verses of commendation and relationship. So verses two and three. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Paul has called them, even just in the previous verse, to imitate him as he imitates Christ. And now he commends them for remembering him and for maintaining the traditions. But he's been correcting them all through this letter for not maintaining the traditions. The traditions are often the teachings of the apostles, the traditions of the apostles that all of the apostles taught. 
He's at least correcting them for not applying those traditions. There's no better place to see this than the very next section where he has to correct everything that they're doing wrong about the Lord's Supper. But we've seen it in every chapter so far. So what traditions is he talking about here? What's he really commending them for? Or is it just sort of a, one of those empty compliments? To be honest, we're not really sure exactly what traditions he's talking about because they seem to be getting nearly everything wrong except we know that they are genuine believers. He calls them brothers repeatedly. We know that they are genuine believers. And at the end of chapter 10, he has just encouraged them in both evangelism and in the edification of the saints. And that's precisely where he goes in this section. Clearly, the the members of the Corinthian church, both men and women, were involved in prayer and prophecy. This is what he says here. Now, prophecy from a New Testament perspective, is a a broad term, and it means speaking the things of God. We often assume that it means basically telling the future, but especially in the New Testament, that isn't always the case. In fact, it becomes less and less common, and more and more as as time goes on in the New Testament, more and more about simply a, a giftedness in proclaiming the Word of God. But as I mentioned earlier in chapter 14, Paul will prohibit women from speaking the things of God in their assembled worship. And as I said, as he can't be um, openly contradicting himself, there must be some sort of teaching and prayer here, as we're speaking of this, it, it must be some sort of teaching and prayer apart from Lord's Day worship. So here's what I think is happening here, okay? In Acts chapter 18, um, really that passage, that chapter gives us a clue, I believe, as to the type of ministry or tradition that Paul had developed when when he planted the church at Corinth. So turn over to Acts chapter 18. I want you to see this. I'm just going to read a couple of verses, but I want you to see this. Acts chapter 18. The opening uh, paragraph of this chapter, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. Because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now jump down to verse 18, which takes place about a year and a half later, maybe even a little bit longer. Verse 18 says this, After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sancria he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews." So Priscilla and Aquila have spent a year and a half working aside this long-haired Paul, and now they're in Ephesus. Now look at verses, um, beginning of verse 24. So Acts 18, 24 says this. 
Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, that is the region where Corinth is, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So this godly couple, Priscilla and Aquila, they had worked alongside Paul in Corinth, and they're often lifted up within the church as, as, as a model couple for home discipleship precisely because they instructed together, they instructed Apollos in the things of God. And this tradition of disciple-making was being passed down through the Corinthian couples. Paul is commending this. They're getting part of this right. They are working to fulfill the Great Commission. They are passing on the faith and praying for one another. But they're also taking the truth of Galatians 3.28, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, you are all one in Christ, and they're applying that to their cultural context in inappropriate ways. They're lifting off all of the boundaries that the Lord had established in creation. Remember, this is, this is ancient Greece, in which, which in many ways is similar to our world. They had a form of feminism that saw, that saw women throwing off their former constraints, including head coverings. And there's some evidence that, for example, the women competed in the athletic competitions, like the Olympic competitions, for example. And, and that doesn't sound like much to us. That's not strange to us. But it symbolized at that time and in that culture a heart of liberation, and then wrapped all up in all of this were issues of modesty, issues of chastity. But Paul here is telling them to remember the creative order. Look again at verse 3. This is sort of the answer key for the whole passage. Verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. This is another verse that has been wildly abused and misused. Women have had this used against them as if, as if every woman necessarily stood subservient to every man. And then in the past few years, we've seen claims that Christ is, is eternally subservient to the Father. So to understand this and to understand what is happening here, we need to understand the meaning of the word head here. This is another major kind of interpretive challenge in this passage. But if we work backwards, there are certain things that we know. It cannot mean something like boss because that's not the eternal relationship of the Father and the Son, right? Yes, it is true that as Philippians chapter 2 
verses 6 to 8 says, Of Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But he did that willingly. He did that as part of the eternal covenant of redemption. And that subservience, that humbling of himself, was only for a time. How do we know that? Because the very next verses say this, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23 puts it like this. And he put, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, <clears throat> there have developed major debates over that meaning of the word head here. But we have to remember that Paul is clearly referring to the creative order. This is about responsibility and leadership. And one of the clearest images in all of Scripture of, of this idea of headship is this God held Adam responsible as the head of his household. God held Adam responsible, even as our federal head. Listen to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then verses 18 and 19 say this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinful, Sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. God held Adam responsible. Sin and death are in this world because of Adam's disobedience. Adam is held responsible. Adam should have stepped in and crushed the head of the serpent. Instead, God promised, Christ will do that. That means that husbands, you're responsible. You're to lead. You're to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And, and wives, you're to let them. You're to encourage them and help them and respect them. And, and yes, even submit to them, just as the scriptures say. And while we have probably spent too much time kind of setting the passage up, we need to look at the relationships here. Paul now gets specific by talking about husbands and wives and shame or dishonor. Look at verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. We'll just stop it right there. Paul starts kind of a, a specific application here with the man. And this sets the trajectory. But notice that just in verse 4, the word head is used twice. Do you see it? The word head is used twice there. And what you might miss is that it has two different meanings. The first is literal, and the second, looking back to the answer key in verse 3, is the head of man, every man is Christ. So we could read it like this. 
Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his Christ, his head. Now, one of the reasons these verses are, one of the reasons these verses are so hard to interpret is because there are so many words or phrases in here that have multiple possible meanings. So there's no consensus among the scholarship as to what this head covering is. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. In fact, a literal translation of this would be something along the lines of down from the head. We don't know what that means. So some take it to mean long hair, which he mentions later. Others connect men wearing sort of head coverings to, in pagan religious practices of the day, which they did. But in order to understand Paul's argument here, we have to figure out verses 5 and 6. So let's look at those. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Now, because of verse 3, remember the answer key, when Paul says here, dishonors her head, he's saying that she dishonors her husband. But the rest of the time that he uses the word head in those two verses, he's talking about her head, the thing above her neck. Okay? So let me ask you this question. This is a serious question. In our society, uh, America 2022, is it shameful for a woman to have short hair or even a shaved head? The answer should be a clear no, right? It's not shameful. It may be out of the ordinary for a woman to have a, a shaved head, for example, as opposed to a man. We've all seen groups of friends who have shaved their heads out of solidarity with a woman with cancer, though, for example. And we would probably conclude that something like that is the opposite of shameful, right? It's loving and brave, even if it's merely symbolic. But in some cultures, it is shameful, either not to wear a burqa or to have a shaved head. And that was the case then as well. And there's more possible reasons having to do with how the prostitutes wore their hair to identify themselves as prostitutes. I don't think it's the point here. Don't miss that Paul's argument on head coverings is contingent on what is shameful in their society. But do you, do you see what is really happening here? The, the roles are being reversed. The wife is usurping her husband. She is dishonoring him by presenting herself in his proper place. Look down at verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? He's expecting them to answer, No, Paul, it is not proper. See, in the, in the Corinthian society, women were to keep their heads covered and to fail to do so represented an unsubmissive heart. All of this is made clear in verses 14 and 15 as the man takes on the role of the woman and vice versa. Now remember, he is talking here about ancient Greece. Let me read verses 14 and 15. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? 
But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given for her for a covering. Again, this, this really isn't about the length of hair. This is about a role reversal. Just as it is shameful for a man to put on a woman's bathing suit and compete against women in an Olympic comp- swimming competition, so it is shameful for a woman to take on the spiritual leadership role as a married couple works on, on carrying on the tradition of fulfilling the Great Commission. As I've said several times this morning, the creative order lies at the heart of Paul's argument. He's appealing to creation, not the pragmatism. And specifically, he, he's looking at the different roles of men and women in creation. So let's look very briefly at these role distinctions. Back in verse 7. Let me read 7 through 12 as he sort of lays out his theology here. Verse 7, For a man ought not cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Adam was created to be the leader. And he viewed his wife, Eve, as a gift from God to be cherished, to be loved, to be cared for, to be protected. And the husband and wife relationship should be a reflection of the relationship between Christ and his church. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that clearly. But especially in verses 7, 8, and 9 here, those are really just a summary of Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Let me read that. Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so in the church, even as husbands and wives minister together, men are given the responsibility of leading. And their wives are given the responsibility of helping. And I want to point out again that Paul does not tell the women of Corinth not to pray or not to speak the things of God. He tells them to do so in a way that honors their husbands, to do so in a way that reflects a heart of submission to God's creative order. This means that the men are are going to have to no longer be content with their wives taking the spiritual lead, whether that's in discipling your own children or in reaching out to others like Apollos 
Husbands are to be loving, sacrificial leaders, and wives are to follow them. Because of the angels, Paul says. I don't know why he says that. <laughs> but here's what I do know. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10, 11, and 12, Peter writes this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look, Peter says. We have been entrusted with the words of life. We ought to take them seriously. We ought to hold to them and pass them on faithfully because all of creation looks at our relationship with Christ longingly. Even the angels. Angels look at the relationship between mankind and God through Christ and they wish they could understand that. We have something special with our God and Savior in all of creation, and that is that we have been created in His image and saved for His glory. I believe that this passage is more of a push for men to be spiritual leaders in a home than it is anything else. This is about glorifying God by being obedient to His commands, and that means maintaining the proper order that He created. Does that mean that women shouldn't pray or teach? Of course not. Instead, this is about maintaining distinct roles. That means that some of the men, even here, need to step up spiritually and lead your wives, your own wives. And some of the wives here need to let your husbands lead, encourage them to lead. But I also need to point out that here at Logansville Church, we already have an advantage compared to our society as a whole, even to so many churches around us. Do you know what that advantage is? The men are here. They're still in church. You're coming. You're active. This is an advantage that we have. One of the early signs of a dying church is that the men stop showing up. I mentioned at the very beginning that inflammatory statement, an unsubmissive wife is contentious. So is a man who is unsubmissive to Christ. But often, in the case of men, it looks like passivity. It looks like apathy. It looks like Adam being there with Eve and not stepping in, not preventing her from eating the fruit, not crushing the head of the serpent. But thanks be to God. Because as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And we can praise God for the work of Christ. 
Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would submit to your word, that we would consider these things. There's so much in here that we left out this morning. But Lord, that we would submit to Christ and to his will, to his word. Father, that we would follow your commands, not because we're trying to earn our salvation, but because we are your children. We have been adopted as your children, brought into your family. And so we want to obey as a display of our love. We want, to dis- we want to obey so that we can become more like Christ, that we can cast off the sin that so easily entangles us. Father, I pray for the men in this church. I'm so thankful for them. I'm so thankful for the fathers and the husbands and the grandfathers and the uncles. and Lord, men in this church who are showing what it means to be a godly man. They've shown it to my own children. They've shown it to these kids that we can hear in the church. Father, we are grateful. I'm grateful for the women in this church who love their husbands, love their children. I'm thankful for the women in this church who love to pray, who love to teach your word, who love to train up their children in the way that they should go, who love to assist moms and dads in teaching in Sunday school. Father, I pray that you would bless husbands and wives in this church. But Lord, I pray as we come to the table this morning to remember that this is all about Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be reminded of your great mercy, of your great righteousness, your steadfast loving kindness toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Father, as we come to your table to eat and drink and and taste and see that the Lord is good, remind us, Lord, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.